The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. All right, everyone, if you'll turn with me to Revelation uh, chapter 8, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. This is the word of the Lord. So I do invite you, if you haven't already, to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. If you were able to be with us last week, then you might be wondering why there is a Revelation chapter 8. Last week concluded uh, with Jesus Christ, the Lamb, breaking the seventh seal on the scroll that we have called the scroll of the conquering kingdom, this scroll that was in the right hand of God, this scroll that we saw would reveal how God's kingdom will ultimately come and how God's people will ultimately conquer. Christ broke the seventh seal on the scroll of the conquering kingdom. And when that seal was broken, we saw that kingdom come. The seals concluded with a vision of the second coming. So this whole thing should be done. Yet Revelation continues on because it has more to reveal. What more is there to reveal? If you remember, seals one through four revealed the four horsemen of conquest, bloodshed, famine, and death that ride across the face of our world and throughout the pages of our history, bringing great tribulation that all of Jesus' followers will face. Those four horsemen were riding about, galloping on the face of this earth in the first century, and they are still riding about and galloping today and will do so until Christ returns. Do we not live in a world of conquest, bloodshed, famine, and, and death? First four seals revealed that these are tribulations that all of Jesus' followers face. Thus, seal number five revealed our cry. The church's cry. As we follow Christ, we cry out, How long, O Lord? 
Like how long until you return and bring redemption to completion and with new creation? How long until you do something, God? And if you remember, God answers that prayer with a promise. He says, I am doing something, and I will do something. I am doing something. These four horsemen that ride about, they're not sovereign. I'm sovereign. My hands are on their reins. And I promise that they don't ultimately win with all of their unrighteous purposes. My good, righteous, right purposes ultimately win. Conquest doesn't win. God's purposes through it do. Bloodshed doesn't win. God's purposes through it do. Famine, death, none of it wins. Christ, the Lamb's hands are on the reins of all of human history and He will work His good purposes through it. I am doing something and I will do something. And seal 6 and 7 showed us what He will do. In response to our prayers, seal 6 and 7 showed he will return to make all things new. That's what he will do. Now, I imagine at this point in the book, the seven churches of Asia Minor, remember that's the churches to whom this book was originally written, I imagine that at this point in the book, they are probably thinking to themselves, that's great news of what God will do. But what is God doing? Like He says He is doing something right now in the midst of history as the four horsemen ride about. What, what is He doing in this world where the four horsemen seemingly ride free? He said He has His hands on their reins, that He's doing something, that He wins. What is He doing in a world in which our Roman culture pressures us to participate in its idolatry and immorality and persecutes us if we don't? What is He doing in a world in which we cry out, How long, O Lord? Right now, what is God doing? Shades, do we not have the same question because we still live in the same world? A world where the four horsemen seemingly ride free. A world in which our culture pressures us to participate in its idolatry and immorality and then it persecutes those who don't. Like A world in which we cry, how long, O oh Lord? Like, do we not have the same attitude? Like it's, it's great, Christ, that one day you will return to make all things new. That's what you will do. But what are you doing? That is the more that Revelation has to reveal. I told you there's more for it to reveal. That's it. Revelation doesn't just reveal what God will do so that we conquer in the end. It also reveals what God is doing so that we conquer right now in Him. Revelation doesn't just reveal what God will do to bring all the chaos of our world to a glorious conclusion one day, it also reveals what He is doing through the chaos of our world to glorify Christ right now in this time and place. Shades, don't you want to know what God is doing? Amidst conquest, bloodshed, famine, death, amidst pandemics, politics, amidst blasts in 
Beirut, hurricanes in the Gulf, fires in California, storms ripping through Iowa in a, in a world of hurricanes and volcanoes and tsunamis and tornadoes. Like, where is God? What is he doing? He seems so silent. Shades, he's not. He's not. And I pray, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear the trumpet blasts of God's glory blaring throughout our world. This is what Revelation 8 and 9 aim for us to hear. Through the blast of seven trumpets, we're only going to cover four today, but through the blast of seven trumpets, we begin to hear what God is doing. And we begin to hear how we should respond to what he is doing so that we live as conquerors in Christ right now. So, for the rest of our time this morning, let's turn our ear and hear the first four trumpets blast forth. Here's what God is doing, and here's how we should respond. Begin reading with me. Revelation chapter 8, and verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now we covered this portion of scripture last week, so there are some details you have to go back to here, but we're here again, obviously, because the seven trumpets are introduced right here. We, uh, we talked about the fact several weeks ago that Revelation has three big cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, Seven bowls. And each of these cycles is designed to give us a different perspective on life in the last days of the church age. Whenever you hear me use the phrase, last days, church age, I'm talking about the same thing because the New Testament is talking about the same thing. From the time of Jesus' resurrection until he returns, the New Testament calls that the last days. That is the church age. First century church lived in it, medieval church, reformation church, us. We're all living in the last days of the church age. And each of these seven cycles aims to show us what life looks like in that time, in our time, so that we may conquer in Christ. I told you, you can think about these three cycles like they're three big loops on the Revelation roller coaster. Like loops on a roller coaster are all loops. But each one will make you see the same coaster from a different perspective. So also, Revelation cycles of seven show us different perspectives on the same period of time, the church age. We can see that simply enough in the fact that all three cycles of seven end the same way with the second coming. Right here, at the beginning of Revelation 8, we're entering into our second cycle. But it overlaps with the first. Do you see that? As soon as the seventh seal is broken, the seven trumpets show up, they, they overlap. They, they interlock. The seal is broken, the trumpets are introduced. It's something similar will happen when we get to the seventh trumpet with regard to the seven Bowls. I've, I've heard this compared to these things being like Russian nesting dolls. Y'all familiar with this? You have the big one, open it, and take out the next one. 
You'll know how this goes. Okay. So we've got the seven seals, and when seven, when the seventh one is open, we get the seven trumpets, and when the seventh one is open, we get the seven bowls. They're like Russian nesting dolls, only they're reversed in the sense that they don't get smaller and smaller, they get bigger and bigger and more intense. Why do they overlap and interlock like this? Because revelation isn't done revealing. That's what you're being signaled to right here. Before the seventh seal is even through, the seven trumpets show up as if to say, all right, you're going to get one perspective on the end, but it's not described in its fullness yet. There's more to see. There's more to be revealed. The seals have given you a perspective on what God will do, but to live as conquerors in Christ, you need a perspective on what God is doing and how you should respond to that. And that is what the sounding of the seven trumpets announce, what God is doing and how we should respond. This week, we're going to focus mostly just on what God is doing. Next week, we'll unpack, we'll, we'll touch on how we should respond, but we'll really unpack that next week in full. So this week, let's see what God is doing. We're going to see it over the course of the first four trumpets. The first four trumpets go together. You may remember the first four seals went together. Remember the first four seals? The four horsemen of the apocalypse, they were like this set. And together, those four horsemen, those four seals, they gave us a perspective of the evils unleashed on earth and perpetuated by man. Yet we saw that God was sovereign over all of it working his righteous, good, and right purposes. The fact that the lamb has his hands on the reins of conquest, bloodshed, famine, and death does not mean that he is responsible for an ounce of its evil. No, we are. We talked about how the wicked, unrighteous will of mankind and the righteous, good, right will of God collide on the same event. And man gets credit for all of the evil, and God gets credit for all of the good. You don't believe he can do it, then you don't believe in the cross. The wicked will of man. There's never been a more wicked event than the cross. The wicked will of man, fully present here, fully responsible for everything that he does. There has never been a more glorious, righteous, and right event than the cross. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. For good, right, glorious, righteous, saving purposes. You can no more charge God with man's evil at the cross than you can give man credit for God's good. That is how God's relationship with all evil everywhere works. He is sovereign over it all. There's not a molecule in this universe that gets out from under his sovereign control. That's good news. That gives me hope that God can do what he promises to do with evil. Namely, work his good purposes through it. And one day make all things new, set all wrongs right, bring perfect and full and complete justice. Only a perfectly sovereign God can do that. And that is the perfectly sovereign God that we saw as we went through those first four horsemen. None of that was in my notes, I'm sorry. Then, if you remember, after we saw those seals of the four horsemen, the next three seals helped us to see 
how people respond in light of what God is doing in the world. First four seals gave us perspective on evil in the world. The last three seals showed how people respond in light of that. I'm willing to bet we're going to get something similar with the trumpets. The first four trumpets go together. They're going to be set off really explicitly. We won't see it till next week, but really explicitly they'll be set off from the last three that'll be called three woes. And I'm willing to bet these four trumpets are going to give us a perspective on evil on this earth. And that those last three trumpets are going to show how people respond to that, how we should respond to that. So, let's see what God is doing over the course of these first four trumpets. And I've got a four-part answer for you. They don't, each part doesn't go with each of the trumpets. I'm sorry, it doesn't line up that way. But four trumpets we're going to cover, and I've got a four-part answer for you for what God is doing. So, what is God doing? Number one, first part of the answer. God is answering our prayers. What is God doing right now? In the midst of the church age, not just what will he do one day when he makes all things new. What is he doing now? He's answering our prayers. Revelation 8, starting with verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Last week, again, you'll have to go back to that if you missed the argument there, but last week we saw how that language, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquake, that second coming language. We're going to see it, not just right here with the seventh seal. We're going to see it in chapter 11 with the seventh trumpet. We're going to see it in chapter 16 with the seventh bowl, and it's going to get more intense every time. But last week we saw how this is second coming language, and right here with the breaking of the seventh seal, Christ's second coming is seen as the final answer to the prayers of his people. That's that's the image here. The prayers of God's people have been going up like incense before the Lord and in answer to them, he finally returns to make all things new. So the image is that those prayers from the the, the fire of those prayers on the altar of incense is gathered up and in response it's thrown to the earth as Christ returns, burns away all things impure, makes all things new. That's the image. But that's not all that's going on here. The seven trumpets have been introduced during this scene on purpose. And not just to say that Revelation has more to reveal. It is to say that. I told you that already. The seven trumpets have been introduced here not just to say that Revelation has more to reveal, but to reveal that there are more ways God is answering the prayers of his people than just with his final return. The seven trumpets are introduced here to show that they are connected to the prayers of God's people. They're introduced right here so that we might see that our prayers are not merely a part of what God will do. No, they are a powerful part of what He is doing. As we walk through the trumpets, the symbolism of the trumpets is going to constantly recall the image we see right here with our prayers, powerfully raining down like fire on the earth. Many of the trumpets are going to be associated with some kind of falling fire. 
Next week, when we finally get to trumpet six, we're going to actually see the, the altar of prayer of incense recalled itself. All of this, the trumpets are constantly connected back to this altar, back to this imagery, all of it to remind us what God is doing right now in the world. What is he doing? He's answering our prayers. Shades, your prayers are not pointless. They're powerful. They're not just going to do something one day. They are doing something right now in the present. They get answered like fire falling from heaven that shakes this earth and makes it quake. Do you believe that? Like about your prayers. Do you believe that prayer is what shakes and shapes this world? That, that had to be hard for the seven churches in Asia Minor hearing this. That had to be hard for them to believe. It was Rome that shook and shaped their world. Rome literally shaped their world with its boundaries and borders and roads, with its powerful weapons of war. Rome, with all its power and politics and politicians, Rome must have seemed to them like, like it was going to be this eternal empire. But shades, the Roman Empire today is nothing but a rotting relic while the church of Christ marches on because of the power of prayer. Think about that juxtaposition. These seven small, seemingly impotent churches who, who couldn't feel like they had any shaping effect on the world whatsoever. Nearly 2,000 years later, the power that seemed to them to be eternal is gone, and their descendants are still here. We're here, sitting in these chairs, worshiping this Savior. The power of prayer. Do not, shades, do not be deceived into thinking that today's empires are eternal. Rome must have seen eternal to that first century. And a lot of our empires seem eternal to us. Do not be deceived in thinking that today's empires are eternal. Every earthly kingdom ever will share the fate of Rome. Do not dedicate your life to a kingdom that's passing away. Don't spend your life clutching and clinging to a kingdom or a country that's passing away. It is fine for us to be proud of our country, to enjoy it, and to, to try and live lives that help to shape it, but shades it passing away. And it is not your forever home. Every earthly kingdom will share the fate of Rome. Do not be deceived into thinking that what our world makes look powerful is what we need in order to shape it and shake it. Shades, we, the church, we do not need political power to shape and shake this world. Do not sacrifice your witness for it. We don't need it. These first century Christians had none of it. No political power. They shook and shaped the world greater than Rome ever could. 
We don't need control of the media to shape and shake our world. We don't need to outpost others on social media. We need to be a people of prayer. I'm not saying to be a people of inaction. First of all, prayer is an action. But all of our other actions, including our political involvement, not telling you not to be involved politically, not telling you to not post on social media, but all of our political involvement, all of our posting, all of our protesting, all of it must be empowered by prayer, done in the strength of Christ for the glory of Christ, or it will be devoid of that which can ultimately truly give life. God works his power through the prayers of his people. Shades, that's not just something he will do, that's something he is doing. How? How? That takes us to the second part of our answer. What is God doing? God is answering our prayers with trumpet blasts of warning. God is answering our prayers with trumpet blasts of warning. Revelation 8, verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. This is in response to the prayers of God's people. Here here come these trumpet blasts, God answering in the the present. There, There are many, so many Old Testament passages uh, that, that... form the background of these seven trumpets, of this entire seven trumpet vision. So many, it feels supernatural. Shades, like I wish I could just go verse by verse and bring out for you every single Old Testament reference. It would take our entire morning. It's ridiculous. I don't know how any human could have composed this. But there are many Old Testament passages that form the background of this seven trumpet vision, but one primary passage that seems to influence a lot, I think, is the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho from Joshua 6. Do you remember this story? God's people are about to conquer the idolatrous and immoral land of Canaan. These are not just innocent, thumb-twiddling, bystanding Canaanites. These are rebellious people who hate God. And they're about to go in and to conquer as God has instructed them to do. And first up, they face a heavily fortified city of Jericho. God gives them a very great battle plan. He tells them to march around the city for six days in silence. Silence except for the sound of the trumpet. Seven priests are to take seven trumpets and blow them while marching alongside the Ark of the Covenant. And they are to do that for six days. Then on day number seven, march around the city seven times. The priests are going to make one final long trumpet blast, and then all the people are to shout. And God would bring down the walls of Jericho and give them victory. Now, see how much what we get right here parallels Joshua Six Right here in Revelation 8, amidst the silence of heaven, it's back up in verse 1. Our picture of heaven thus far throughout Revelation has not been a place of silence, but a place of great shouting and praise of victory and the salvation of God. We've had living creatures and elders and myriads upon myriads of angels singing, and now they all fall silent. And amidst the silence of heaven, we have seven trumpets handed out to seven 
angels. Seven angels that Revelation 15 and verse 6 will tell us are dressed to resemble priests. Hmm. And we're going to see six of them sound their trumpets into the silence. And then once we eventually finally get to Revelation 11.15 and the final seventh trumpet blows, we will be told it blows before the heavenly ark of the covenant and all of heaven will break forth with a shout of victory. Do you see how these stories parallel one another? They do so in order to show us what these trumpets are doing. They're blasting forth warning. Jericho was warned six times. Jericho was warned six times not to trust in the fortifications of their own strength so that they could keep clinging to their idolatry and immorality. And the trumpets of Revelation sound forth the same warning. Don't keep clinging to your own fortification, your own sources of security so that you can guard your idolatry and immorality. Don't don't keep clinging to that. They sound forth the same warning. How? That takes us to the third part of our answer. What is God doing? God is answering our prayers with trumpet blasts of warning that lovingly reveal his supremacy. God's answering our prayers with trumpet blasts of warning that lovingly reveal his supremacy. Look at verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet. There followed hail fire mixed with blood in other words a storm that brings death and these were thrown upon the earth fire being thrown upon the earth it recalls that image of prayer this is in response to prayer and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up now remember This is highly symbolic, apocalyptic language. I don't think that we are meant to envision a singular, literal event of crazy, bloody hail and fire that burns up things in thirds. Like Being that literalistic is going to get even harder when we get to trumpet two. Because in trumpet two, a third of the sea is going to turn to blood. How, do, how does that like not all like mix together? Or trumpet four, where a third of the sun and the stars and the moon are going to be darkened, resulting in a darkening of a third of the day and a third of the night. Like, like how's that supposed to? How do you divide the sun into like thirds and, and darken a third so that it darkens a third of the day? Like, You press the language too hard, we've said it again and again, and it falls apart. But none of that is the point. To get to the point, we need to think through the Old Testament background of this symbolism again. Think about the first trumpet with me. What did we see there? We heard about a a storm, hail, fire. Ever heard something like that before? Maybe a plague of hail and fire. Exodus chapter 9 was the seventh plague on Egypt. I wonder if the other trumpets will resemble plagues that hit Egypt. Look at verse 8. 
The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Huh. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Keep reading. Verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and spring waters. The star's name was Wormwood. That's a bitter herb. Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and made people, and many people died from the water because it had been made. Trumpets 2 and 3 affect the waters of the world. Salt water turned to blood. Fresh water made undrinkable. That sounds a lot like the first plague in Egypt, Exodus 7, where the Nile River is turned to blood, fish die, and the water is undrinkable. Huh. Verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, likewise a third of the Night, that sounds a lot like plague number nine, when there was darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness that Exodus 10.21 says could be felt. These first four trumpets are grouped together and recall the Exodus plagues. Plagues that were designed to reveal God's supremacy to Egypt. Because if you go back to those plagues, each of those plagues was designed to prove that Egypt's gods were powerless before the one true God. I mean, just these. The goddess of the sky could not stop the storm of hail and fire. Their god of the Nile couldn't stem the tide of blood. I really wanted to make a crimson tide joke right there, but I won't. You couldn't stem the tide of blood. And their god of the sun could not fight back the night. Through the plagues of Egypt, the one true God systematically deconstructed everything the Egyptians trusted in. He revealed the the folly of their idolatry, as if any false god could give them security. You think you get security from the sun god? Blackened. You think you get security from the god of the Nile who makes this water flow for you to drink and crops grow? Blood. He systematically takes away everything that they trust in. Reveals the foolishness of all of their idolatry. He revealed the emptiness of their immorality, as if any false god could bring them satisfaction. Through the plagues, God was revealing his glorious supremacy as our only security and our only satisfaction. This is what he's doing in Revelation chapter 8. Through the first four trumpets, these are warning blasts that lovingly reveal God's supremacy over all the world's idolatry and immorality. Just look at the things these trumpets take aim at. Trumpet one hits the earth, the trees, and the grass. We might simply sum it up by saying land. Trumpet two hits the earth's salt water with its creatures and its ships. We might sum it up by saying the sea. Trumpet three hits fresh water, and trumpet four hits the skies. Land, sea, water, sky. This is a fourfold description pointing to the totality of creation. In other words... Everything we trust in for our security instead of God. Everything we treasure for our satisfaction instead of God. Everything in this world. 
that you could put in the place of God for your security or your satisfaction. All of it, God blasts forth, forth warnings that reveal all of it is empty. Just like the four horsemen of the first four seals symbolized the evils of man that run rampant throughout the church age. I think what we have here is the first four trumpets symbolize the perils that plague creation during those same days. In other words, the focus of the seals was what we might call moral evil brought about by people. The focus of the trumpets is what we might call natural evil things that happen in nature and strike the whole of creation. Storms, wildfires, hurricanes, volcanoes, tsunamis, tornadoes, earth, sea, water, sky. There is not an inch of this world that isn't blaring forth the warning of God that nothing in creation can give ultimate security. Nothing in creation can give ultimate satisfaction. All idolatry and immorality is empty. God alone has supremacy. Do his trumpet blast throughout creation, not blare forth that warning. Think about anything that you would aim to trust in for security. Can it not be ripped away by any of these things that plague creation? Anything that you trust in for satisfaction, can it not be gone in a second? Are these not the warning blasts of God? That there is nothing in all of creation that can ultimately give security or ultimately satisfy. How about, think about the current pandemic. Does this not serve as a warning about where we find our security and satisfaction. For so many people, what they trust in, what they treasure, has been ripped away. Which of my idols, which of your idols has been exposed by this pandemic? Has, has this pandemic not revealed the folly of the things we idolatrously trust in or that we immorally treasure. This is God lovingly, yes, lovingly, sovereignly, lovingly, sovereignly revealing His supremacy as He painfully strips away our false securities and satisfactions in order to lovingly reveal the only source of real security and satisfaction Himself. Listen, I am not saying for a single second that you can't talk about this pandemic, hurricanes, tornadoes, storms, wildfires as evil. Absolutely you can. And we can point every ounce of that evil towards the sin of man that brought creation underneath corruption and towards the unrighteous will of our enemy, Satan, who wants to work these things for our destruction. 
You can talk about the pandemic as a tool in the hands of the enemy to try and destroy our faith and destroy the faith of the church. But I have good gospel news. The enemy doesn't win because our God is sovereign over every hurricane ever and every pandemic that's ever hit this planet. And he has good, right, and righteous purposes through all of it. And his purposes win. And his purposes in the midst of all of these things is to strip away anything that we would falsely seek security or satisfaction. In other words, anything we would set up for ourselves as an idol. Just like with Egypt, as he revealed systematically that all of their false gods were not the true source of satisfaction, security, and power. He does the same thing for us. You need help thinking through this. Go this afternoon and read 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul is dealing with his thorn in his flesh. We might call this natural evil. We're not 100% sure what it was, but let's just pretend for a second that it was a sickness from a pandemic. He says it was a messenger given to him from Satan to afflict him to keep him from becoming conceited. Whose purpose is that? That's God's purpose. Paul simultaneously looks at this thorn in his flesh and he says, Satan is trying to use it to destroy me and God is using it to refine me and draw me closer to him and make me depend more on him. Paul prays for the thorn to be taken away and God says, no, I'm not going to take it away because my power will be made perfect in your weakness. In other words, I'm going to leave it there so you have to depend more on me and not your own strength, Paul. Therefore, Paul praises God for this thorn. If you ask Paul, Paul, is your thorn from Satan or from God? Paul would say, yes. Is the pandemic from Satan or from God as a result of sin or is it headed for righteous purposes? I would say, yes. And God wins. That's the good news of the gospel. Our God is lovingly revealing his supremacy as he painfully strips away our false securities and satisfactions in order to reveal himself as the only source of true security and satisfaction. We pray for this. Every time we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We are praying for God to be seen and embraced as supreme over everything. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're praying for God to shake and wake our world from its idolatry and immorality to trust and treasure in Him. And, shades, God is answering our prayers with trumpet blasts of warning that lovingly reveal His supremacy and sin's destiny. That's the fourth and final part of our answer. What is God doing? Answering our prayers for his name to be hallowed. Answering our prayers with trumpet blasts of warning that lovingly reveal his supremacy and sin's destiny. In other words, through all the chaos we see in creation, God is not just glorifying Christ, showing him as the sole source of satisfaction and security, our trust and our treasure. God's not just revealing Christ as supreme over everything. Simultaneously, he is showing us through all of these things where the path of sin ends. Every, every natural disaster is a preview of how sin's story concludes with destruction and death. Look at the trumpets. Trumpet number one warns, make an idol out of land, crops, 
grass, different types of grass, crops, land, crops, trees. In other words, make an idol out of the resources or possessions or wealth of this world and trumpet-like disasters warn us that path ends in destruction and death. Trumpet number two warns the kingdoms of this world that seem so powerful that promote their own forms of idolatry. Those kingdoms don't trust in them, don't make an idol out of them. They will burn and sink along with their wealth. You see that in trumpet number two, this fiery mountain that sinks into the sea, destroying a lot of the natural resources around, fish, destroying the ships. Apocalyptic literature often uses mountains as symbols of earthly kingdoms. I think the Old Testament background of what's going on in this trumpet is Jeremiah chapter 51, where Babylon is pictured as a mountain that burns and sinks. Later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to see Rome equated with the Old Testament Babylon, really because there is a Babylon in every generation. It's any kingdom that would exalt itself and trust in itself above God. That is a Babylon. And if we trust in the kingdoms of this world and the idolatry they promote the idolatry of their mountain-like, they claim to have mountain-like power and permanence, the idolatry of their ship-laden wealth from trade and fishing prosperity. We trust in that. Then trumpet-like disasters warn us all that all the kingdoms of creation, here's a preview of their end. They burn and sink and are no more. Their end is destruction and death. Trumpet number three warns that when you drink from a world polluted with idolatry, here's a preview of where that path ends, destruction and death. Trumpet number four warns when we embrace a life of darkness, here's a preview of where that path ends with destruction and death. Shades, our world echoes with Jericho trumpet blasts of warning. Warning that nothing in this world can give us security. None of it can satisfy. All of it's empty. And like Egypt, we're called to see God in His supremacy as He lovingly dethrones and destroys all of our idols so that He will be the only one we trust and treasure forever. How are we to respond to what God is doing? I told you we'd touch on that right here at the very end. How are we to respond to what God is doing? The, the text stresses that we need to respond. It stresses that we need, it stresses that there's time to respond because these judgments aren't final. They're warnings meant to wake us up. That's seen in the fact that again and again, we're told they only affect a third of creation. In other words, these judgments are limited. They're not final they're, they're like previews of what is final. Right now, as God is answering our prayers with trumpet blasts of warning, lovingly revealing His supremacy and sin's destiny, the question is left, how will we respond? With repentance or rebellion? Those are the two responses. We're going to see that even clearer next week. This is, this is the call being issued by this vision to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Do you remember as we read the individual messages to those seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3? We saw that they were filled with plenty of people who were compromising to embrace idolatry and immorality of their culture, just, just like us. 
And again and again, they were called to repent. They live in a world filled with warning trumpet blasts just like ours. They knew a world of storms at sea, storms on land, volcanoes that buried cities and earthquakes that tore cities down to the ground. When the trumpet blasts reveal that all of their and our idolatry and immorality is empty, temporary, unable to offer security and satisfaction, when, when the trumpet blasts reveal that, will we see God is lovingly showing us His supremacy? Will we repent and return to Him as the only treasure that can satisfy our hearts forever? Or will we rebel? When we hear the trumpet blast, will we raise a fist at God and shake it for taking away the things that we treasured and loved? Will, will we harden our hearts like the Egyptians or, or like Jericho? Will we keep trusting in our walls of fortification that we've built until the day when they finally fall down? In other words, shades, when we hear these trumpet blasts echo throughout our world, Will you hear them as sounds of victory or defeat? The trumpet blast at Jericho sounded like victory to those trusting in God. But it sounded like defeat to those who idolized the strength of their own walls. You hear these trumpet blasts of suffering hit creation do they sound like defeat? Do, do you raise a hand at God in, in anger and in rebellion for making our idolized walls fall? Or do they sound like victory? Do you raise your hands in praise of the God who has lovingly reminded us where all our idolatry and immorality ends? Do we praise the God who has called us back to the only treasure that can satisfy our hearts, himself? Do the, do the very trumpet blasts that, that make so many people run from God in doubt, despair, and defeat, do they lead us back to God, trusting and hoping in him as our victory? Shades. The trumpet blasts are sounding. God is doing something right now. Through all the chaos in our world, He is answering our prayers with trumpet blasts of warning that lovingly reveal His supremacy and sin's empty destiny. He's showing us the supreme glory of Christ. Will we repent or rebel?